Welcome to the Redeemer Podcast. For more information about Redeemer Church, visit makingmuchofjesus.org. We hope you enjoy the talk and invite you to visit us next Sunday at either our 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. service. Amen. It's good to see you. Please take your Bibles and go to the book of James, the New Testament letter of James. It's where we'll be over the next few weeks, right after the book of Hebrews and right before First Peter. And I, if you don't have a bulletin or... If you don't have, if you haven't grabbed a little card in front of you and started to fan yourself yet, I invite you to do that at this time. Uh, we had an AC go out this morning, so it's pretty hot. Uh, so you already know that. Uh, it's like I'm informing you, really? I had no idea. It was, that was cold. Um, so thank you. Uh, we'll get that fixed, hopefully. But by God's grace, we're here and we're able to gather and to worship King Jesus, regardless of roof or AC or anything. But I do wish I had a lighter jacket. That is one thing. I, I did wish. And today's about trials. And having no AC is definitely not a trial. But James, James is one of the most practical books in all of scripture. There, there's a reason why so many people love James. It's because Romans is awesome. Romans is great, but it, you got to do a lot of work with Romans at some portions too. You really got to get into the nitty gritty of, okay, what is Paul intending here? What is he meaning? What are the analogies and, and allusions he's making? But James, he just gets you right to the point and brings you immediately practical, applicable, immediately understandable truth to all of life. And you've probably heard a lot of the book of James. You've probably heard a lot of its verses and then heard a lot of its kind of phrases, and they've kind of been just kind of thrown all throughout, like great random pearls that I know you've probably heard, like count it all joy. Every good gift is from above. Be doers of the word. Don't be like a man who looks in the mirror and then immediately forgets what he looks like. Don't show partiality. Pure and undefiled religion is this, to care for orphans and widows and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Or... Faith without works is dead. Even the demons believe that God is one. Or resist the devil and he will flee. And and draw near to God and and he will draw near to you. And God gives more grace. Another famous line from James is, do not say, I will do this or I will do that. But say, if the Lord wills. And let your yes be yes and let your no be no. And if anyone is sick, let him call for the elders, let them anoint them with oil and, and pray for them. For it's so on and on, James is filled with these amazing truths and these dazzling pearls that we quote all the time. And I hope by studying the book of James together, that we'll begin to bring all these pearls together and you'll begin to see the amazing jewelry, the amazing priceless worth that is found in this book that God has given us in the book of James. And at the same time, I we'll see that, and I hope that we'll see that this book is meant to be immediately applied to life. That God wants us to take this necklace that is James, this pearl necklace, and take it out of the display case and put it around our necks. And to actually wear it, and to actually see it come to work in our life. Because God's word is meant to direct our life. It's a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. Solomon says in in Proverbs 1 that the book of Proverbs and God's wisdom, all of it, is like a garland or a pendant that his sons could wear around his neck, reminding him of truth and guiding him wherever they go. That's what James is after for us too. It's about daily practical Christianity. Guys, half of the book, half of the book of James is commands. Out of the 108 verses in the book, 59 of them include an imperative, a command, do something, don't do something. 
showing that it's putting our faith to work, that our faith in Christ is now playing out in our lives for how we live with, live with him and live for him. So let's look at James chapter one. And as we do every week, if you're able, let's stand in honor of the reading of the word of Christ. And we'll read the first half of chapter one. And we hear from the Holy Spirit through our brother James. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and it withers the grass. Its flowers fall and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. The desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth a death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's pray together. Jesus, would you help us now? Would you help us to hear your word? Holy Father, would you help us to see what it is that you have to say to your church by your spirit, by your word? Help us now, Lord, to, to assess our lives and to think about our trials and to think our temptations and our gifts, that we would think about all these things according to your word now, this moment, this day. Lord, for those here that your children who are in the midst of a severe trial, would you would you minister to them, Lord? And Lord, for those of us who are not in one, would you help us to get prepared to hide these words in our hearts that we may not sin against you? And it's in your mighty name we pray, King Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. I've been reading this book lately um, called A Hundred Deadly Skills. It's the SEAL operative's guide to eluding pursuers, evading capture, and surviving any dangerous situation. And I'm learning all kinds of crazy, cool stuff in this book, like where to hide top secret information in your house. Or if you're kind of a paranoid vacationer, where you could hide stuff in a hotel room. Definitely not in the safe in the hotel room. You want to take the shower curtain rod. Here's a free tip. Shower curtain rod, take it off. Take off the little rubber end cap, and that shower curtain rod is hollow. Put stuff in the shower curtain rod, put the cap back on, put it up. 
You can hide all kinds of stuff in there or candies or whatever you want to hide from your kids. I've learned how to make an improvised weapon from an umbrella if you're being followed. Uh, It's really great. I won't share that one with you because you got to buy the book to get that one. But I'm learning all kinds of things that I'll probably never do. I'm learning all kinds of senseless skills and ideas and things that I'll probably never put to practice and I'll probably never, ever encounter. And that's how a lot of us sometimes feel about how we read the Bible. We're reading verses, we're learning things and wondering, how in the world am I going to apply this? Does this really matter for my daily life? It does, it all does, for all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable But sometimes it just takes more thinking. Okay, how is this working now? How do I put this to work? But the book of James is the exact opposite of the 100 Deadly Skills book. I mean, it's filled with immediately practical, on-the-ground knowledge and wisdom that we need for today. So who is James? Well, James, verse 1, what does he say? Notice how different his introduction is than Paul's. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, okay, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. That's very Paul-like. And this is un-Paul-like. Greetings. And then he moves on. Paul would go into this long thing about how he loves them, how he cares for them, how he's thinking all these things. James is very quick, getting right to what we need. Well, who is this James? James is the half-brother of Jesus. He's Jesus's little brother. Now, for our elementary kids or any, any student, really, anybody in the room, can you imagine what it would have been like to have Jesus be your older brother. He never got in trouble. You were in trouble way more than Jesus was ever in trouble. Ever. He is literally Mr. Perfect. Like, oh, you think you're Mr. Perfect? Yes. I, that's exactly who I am. Even the time his family lost him, he's 12 years old and they traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover and they're a day away. They've left. They're a day journey in. And Mary and Joseph realize we don't have Jesus. We thought he was with the big herd of people. They go back another day's journey, spend a day looking for him. Three days they have lost Jesus. So I've lost one of my kids before for about 13 seconds. It was horrifying. We went and saw Finding Dory. I turned to Finding Ivy real quick after that movie. Imagine losing Jesus. So Sometimes we parents, we struggle with things like, oh, I'm such a bad parent. Well, you didn't lose Jesus for for three days. (laughs) They find Jesus. And imagine you're the the younger brother. You're probably thinking, oh, you're James. Jesus is going to get it now. He he ran away. He left them. Oh, man, he's going to get an old-fashioned Bethlehem spanking. I know it. They find him. Mary, Jesus, what have you been doing? Why did you do this to us? You know we've been looking for you. And they find him, and he's at the temple teaching. And he's astounding people in the, in the temple. And Jesus says, why are you looking for me? You know I'm about my father's business. And instead, Mary, it says that Mary stored these things in her heart. No whooping. You know, James probably like, you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> if I pull that, I'm in big trouble. But Jesus, and even when Jesus began his ministry, his brothers didn't believe him. They thought he was crazy. Because here you have your older brother saying, I and the Father are one. I'm the way, the truth, and life. And that no one gets to the Father but by me. I'm the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He reads from the scroll of Isaiah, reads it, and says, this has all been fulfilled because you heard me read it to you. So you could see how James would be like, 
you, you would understand this verse in Mark chapter three. When his family heard it, this big crowds with Jesus at this point, his family went out to seize him for they were saying he is out of his mind. His family think Jesus, they think he's crazy. And they're apologizing for Jesus. Saying, sorry, don't hold that against us. We, we think he's kind of lost it. Another time Jesus is being chased and he's hiding. He's not ready to die. He knows this is not my time. The Jews want to kill me. I'm hiding. I'm going to die at a later time and rise again. And his brothers are making fun of him. You want to be known, Jesus? Why don't you go out in public? You can't be Mr. Big Guy if you're in secret. And Jesus tells them it's not my time to die. And John tells us why they told him these things. John 7, 5, for even his brothers, for not even his brothers believed in him. So how does this James, this James who said his brother was crazy, this James who doesn't believe that Jesus really is who he says he is, how does he go to James chapter one, verse one? A servant or a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He goes from thinking his brother is out of his mind to now saying that my brother is now the royal Lord of the universe and I am his servant. How does that happen? It's because he saw his brother die on a Roman cross and then he saw his brother rise again from the dead. And in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that he appeared to the disciples. He appeared to more than 500 at one time and he appeared to James and the rest. The death of Jesus for our sins and his resurrection from the dead, it changes us. This is now the truth of the whole book of James. This really is the fundamental hyper switch in the Christian life, that we believe Jesus died for us and that he rose again for us and that he really is alive right now and that now this changes the way we live. We don't just live this way because we think it's a good idea. We don't just read the Bible because we think that's what you're supposed to do. It's because we believe there is a man from Galilee sitting on a throne reigning over the universe and that because he is alive, now we follow him. Because faith without works is dead. This is truly the whole book of James. And James, he goes on after he believes in his brother who's risen from the dead. He goes on to be a leader in the Jerusalem church. You can read all about him in Acts and Jerusalem Council. In Galatians 2, Paul calls him a pillar in the Jerusalem church. And that's why you see in verse 1, who is his audience? Who is James writing to? To the 12 tribes, to the Jews, and the dispersion. These are the Jews who have been scattered. They've, they're no longer in Jerusalem. Now they are all over the Mediterranean world because of persecution. They've left the Palestinian area, and now they're all over the Mediterranean world. And through the networks of churches, through the networks of synagogues, James is writing to them, and he begins with a very common thing in the Christian life, and especially with the early church. It's kind of like a field guide to trials. And he begins with, here's what we should think in our trials. Verse two, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. If we're honest, this is one of the verses at times that we wish wasn't in the Bible. Count it all joy when you meet various trials. We often think that the Bible would make things easier in our lives. We read, okay, immediate comfort. Okay, it's going to make it immediately easier. But oftentimes we read the Bible and it makes things more complicated. Well, because crucifixion isn't easy. Death to self is not an easy thing. Death machines aren't comfortable. This is a verse for picking up our cross and dying to what we think and then following Jesus on this path. 
And some of us, we're in trials. We know, some of us are going, oh, I'm not. I, I don't need to listen to this. You do because a day is coming when you will be in one. You will be in a severe one. And this text can prepare you for that day. But what do trials do? And notice he says various trials. Various kinds. There is a, there is a cost conus to our trials. They have many shapes, many sizes. But what are they? What do they do? What do they accomplish? Verse three. For you know, I think this is how we can define what a trial is by comparing verse two and verse three. For you know, verse three, that the testing of your faith. So he says the trials test your faith. He's using, these words are interchangeable right now. Testing of your faith or a trial. You can switch them in and out. He's defining them by verses two and verse three. So anything that gets up in the face of your faith and challenges it and pushes it is a trial. Anything that puts a finger in your chest and challenges your faith in God and his character and his attributes, challenges his, and kind of tests, do I really believe that the Bible, this is, this is how I should live? Do I really believe that Jesus really did rise again from the dead? Do I really believe that I should follow Christ and that he, that he loves me? Is the Bible true? All of these things can be various trials, various kinds, cancer, sickness, loss of a job, Suffering, the, the death of a loved one. When, when you've been treated unfairly and you've been treated harshly by a coworker or a boss or a friend, you've been dealt a severe disappointment. Persecution. We don't know that one as well yet. I think we will in the next few years. But our brothers and sisters all around the world know Persecution. Chronic pain. I mean, you go on and on and on. These are various trials. And James says, count it all joy. You can also translate it, count it pure joy. The Holman Christian Standard Bible says, consider it a great joy. The New Living Translation translates it as, consider an opportunity for great joy. So what do these mean? First, we have to see that these verses, like verse 2, count it all joy. This is not a command for how to feel. This is not commanding you to slap a smile on your face during your sufferings. This is a charge how to think, how to renew your mind. This is not a call to fake it, to smile, because count means think. Count, think it, joy. And verse 3 proves that too. What does he say in verse 3? So count it all joy. Why? Verse 3, for you know for you know this, you can think this way, not for you feel. So in other words, you could summarize it as, think this way about your trials because you know what the testing of your faith does. I mean, Peter says in 1 Peter that they have been grieved by various trials. So James says, count it all joy when you meet various trials. Peter says, you've been grieved by various trials. So these two verses can live together and both be true. You can think a right way and then still be grieved. Like when Jesus came to Lazarus' family after he died, I'm assuming with 100% and believing in my heart, Jesus thought rightly about the trial they were facing and the trial he was facing at the death of his friend. He didn't walk up to them and say, count it all joy, guys. What does John say? He wept. Jesus was sad. He was grieved. 
So it's not sub-Christian to grieve. It's not unspiritual to be grieved in our trials. But James is calling us to think about our trials, to, and it's a deeper charge, is to change the attitude of our trials. Why? Why don't we look beyond them? What's, what's beyond the scaffolding of our trials? Verse 3. For you know that the testing of your faith, the trial, produces steadfastness. So when your faith is tested, does God really love me? Is God really good? That, that temptation comes, that trial brings it, cancer strikes, suffering strikes, and you remain steadfast. God is good. Your firm, firm footing is established. Your, your grip on who God is is made stronger. You, you get a better grip. You think of it when you're moving some heavy furniture. You're like, hold on, let me, let me get a better grip. Stead, these trials help you get a better grip on who God is. And wave after wave after wave, if you've built your house on the rock and not on sand, you're steadfast. And I, I love this quote from the movie, The Revenant. It's the wife kind of repeats this all throughout the movie. When there is a storm and you stand in front of a tree, if you look at its branches, you swear it will fall. But if you watch the trunk, you see its stability. Think about when hurricanes come and you see your trees in your yard and they're like, oh, those branches going everywhere. But that trunk, it's not moving. And remember that he is the vine. We are the branches. We might be going all over the place, wave after wave, trial after trial, but we have the trunk. We're secured in Christ. And knowing what a steadfastness brings. Steadfastness isn't even the ultimate goal. It's on the way to the goal. Verse four is the goal. This is why we count it all joy. And let steadfastness, verse four, have its full effect that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. Three different words, three different phrases to describe. What's it bringing about? Maturity, Christ-likeness, completion. Trials are one of the common ingredients in the life of Christians. It's part of the recipe. We, we can't be allergic to them. Americans, we often think we're allergic to them. We want to we alleviate them. We want to evade them. But it is a common ingredient in the recipe to make a Christian. The steadfastness in trials. For we join him, Christ, in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. But let's, let's think about one reason why trials and, and tests are an opportunity for joyful thinking. Because this feels foreign to us. We would think, oh, it's awful. Oh, this is horrible. And in one sense, yes. But in another sense, it's joy bringing. Why? When I read verses two through four, count it all joy. This is an accounting term. So I picture two scales in my mind. This is, I think this is James's kind of argument too. You got these scales, they're empty. Trials, various kinds of trials. Boom. That scale almost flies off the table. He says, okay, now I want you to count it all joy. And let steadfastness have its full effect, for you know what the testing of your faith brings. It brings about completion, maturity, Christ-likeness. Put that on the other side. Does that move the scales for you? This is James' whole argument. Does knowing that your trials will bring about steadfastness, which will then bring about you growing in Christ-likeness, and for the Christian, that is compelling enough to go, yes, that's fine. I can endure. I can be steadfast. Does that move the scales for you, or is that not enough? Or would you rather have heard, count it all joy, because God's going God's to make it go away if you pray really hard. 
That's not what he says. Count on all joy because God promises you health and wealth and prosperity. That's not what it says. What moves the scales for a Christian is knowing I am going to be like Jesus on the other side of this. I'm growing in maturity. I'm growing to be more and more like him. Is that rewarding enough for you? And as disciples of the Lord Jesus, so if we're his, does the outcome of growing in holiness, even if a trial is the path, we can think joy because Jesus is our joy. James is really recentering us on what we want most. Is becoming like Jesus a joy to you? Or does that in and of itself seem like a trial? That the one who died for our sins and rose again from the dead is now offering us his very own self. Right there in the trench of the trial, we are walking with him, becoming like him. And this isn't easy. James doesn't pretend that it's easy. James doesn't even pretend this is automatic. It's not automatic that we go, okay, yeah, that's right. I'm going to be like Jesus. We have to ask for help. That's verses five. So what do we ask for in our trial? Verses five through eight. Because this isn't automatic. What should we ask for? Verse five. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. This verse is often ripped out of its immediate context of just ask God for wisdom, and I think that's still true. But in its original context right now, it's in the realm of suffering and trials. That if you are lost and you don't know what to do, you don't know how to respond, you don't know how you should act when this thing is happening in your marriage, you don't know how to act when this is happening at work, you don't know how to act with this one child of yours, God says, ask me for wisdom. When your mental Google Maps feel like it's not sinking quick enough, God says, ask me. I will help you. This wisdom isn't smarts or IQ. This is the ability to live the Christ-empowered life. To ask for wisdom is another way of saying, I am asking for the power of Christ to be at work in me, to, to respond how Jesus would respond, and to live how Jesus would live, and to think how Jesus would think. Listen, we need to make it a reflex to ask God for wisdom, to seek him first, and then all these things will be added unto us because this is not natural to us. Because the way the world responds to trial is fire with fire. You were treated harshly, treat them harshly back. You were gossiped about, well, gossip even worse about them. They said something nasty to you, respond nasty back. They took advantage of you, you take advantage of them. That's how the world acts. That's not the way of wisdom. Guys, it's not abnormal to feel overwhelmed in a trial. That's why this verse is here. It is now, because you know this verse, it will now be abnormal and odd for you to not ask God for wisdom. And he will give it generously. And he just lavishes it on us to all who ask. And sometimes we don't ask because we feel ashamed. Like, oh, I've been a Christian for 20 years. Oh, I've dealt with this before. I, I should know this already. And so we're, we feel ashamed to ask. That's why James says he will give it generously to all without reproach. He will not say under his breath as he gives you wisdom. You got to be kidding me, though. There won't be a scowl in his face. There won't be a sense of disappointment when you ask for wisdom. Gabriel showed me in between services, he just was reading that when Solomon, when God asked Solomon, ask for anything you want and I'll give it to you. Solomon said, I want wisdom so I can lead your people. It says in 1 Kings that it pleased God that Solomon asked. It pleases God when we ask. 
There's no good grief, Charlie Brown, attached to when we ask for wisdom. He informs us through the catalog of Proverbs. He leads us by the spirit of Christ who lived wisely on our behalf. But there is one one asterisk, though. Verse 6. But let him ask in faith. That's all God wants. That's all God requires. Faith. With no doubting. The one who doubts is like a wave of the sea is driven, tossed by the wind. But that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Verse 8, he's a double-minded man. James makes up this word. Nowhere else in Greek literature, just James. Double-minded. A way we would say it would be half-hearted. Not fully in. Straddling the fence. Ask in faith. What, what kind of faith? Well, faith in that there is no doubt in that God's wisdom is the best way to go in this trial. That my way is not the best way. God's way is the best way. And have faith that God will answer. None of the, well, I've asked him before. Keep asking. He will give. He doesn't say when he will give or even how he will give. He says, keep asking. And maybe it's because you haven't gotten it because you're doubting. Doubting the wisdom that he will give, that he is, his way is the best way, and that he actually will show you. Do not be like an oscillating fan that we all wish we had right now. <laughs> and actually, an oscillating fan would be worse. That's why when you love an oscillating fan, you're like, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah. You want the one that's just right on you, and God's asking for the same thing. Don't be like that fan that's just going back and forth. Stay right with him. So do I trust God? Do I trust God about this? Yes. Well, I don't know. I mean, that, that's a good idea too. No, none of that. Believe God's wisdom is the best way. Because we often think, well, if I could do this with the world's way, or, or if I had more money, I know money could fix this. And the things that money could buy could fix this. Maybe temporally, maybe externally, but not eternally, not, not in our souls. Becoming more like Christ cannot be purchased with money. Only God can do that. That's why he says in verses 9 through 12, here's what we should look at in our trials. Verses 9 through 12 are really about money. You have poor Christians and rich Christians, and really most Christians throughout the world are all poor. We are very wealthy Christians on a global scale. We're all rich. If you have a Bible, you are rich. So what does this verse mean? Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation? The lowly brother, the, the poor brothers and sisters, they know I can't wait for eternity because all this stuff I have in my life now, this is nothing. This is nothing compared to what's going to come. That's why he says in verse 10, and the rich in his humiliation, we're going to be humbled because we're going to realize all this stuff that I have is nothing. I, I put so much stock in it. I put so much pressure in it. I thought it was so good and so great. And that's why we struggled to think about eternity being so great because we're convinced this is our best life now. We're convinced this is all great. We don't really long for what's to come in the way that we should. And so we will be humbled and see, yes, this is better. That's why I love the way he says in verse 11, for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, just like our grass will be in mid-July. We don't water it. 
in the Texas heat. It's just done. It's over. So were our riches. So were our lives. Just like Ecclesiastes, it's going to be here and then gone. That's why he says in verse 12, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Sounds just like the Sermon on the Mount. Because he's been impacted and affected by Jesus's teachings. And so should we, when the way we talk to each other, we should begin to sound like the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, who doesn't buckle. Why? For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So what's your reward? The crown of life. This is not a a gold crown like a king. This is the Greco-Roman wreath of athletic competition they would wear around their neck. He says, here's what you should look to in trials. Your reward to come. How often does eternity actually motivate you today? Are you more motivated by comfort or in relief of a trial or by the crown of life that is to come? Total trust in God your entire life under those trials and one day will come, you will blink and you will open up your eyes and you will, be, you will have the crown of life around your neck. Promise to those who love him, which God has promised to those who love him. He's already promised it to you. It's already effectively yours. And now you are just waiting to receive it, and there will be trials along the way. But what happens when we don't stand fast? What happens when we did sin during the trial? What happens when we did give in? We fell into those temptations. James says, I want you to understand what happens in these temptations. Verses 13 through 15. Let no one say when he is tempted. This word tempted and the word test and the word trial, these are almost all the same word, almost all interchangeable all throughout the text. The trials come, we're tempted in the trials. The test comes, we're tested with these and these temptations come up. So what happens in temptation? Verse 13, let each one say when he is tempted, let them not say, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So James says, we can't blame God. We can't say God is tempting us. He says, for God, what? Cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. I have a hard time understanding that phrase. I had to think about this for a while. When you read the Bible, you got to sit and really think about, what am I reading? Does this make sense to me? If it doesn't make sense, you should stop and go, Lord, this doesn't make sense. Help me understand this. So God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. This is, this is why we say, I am not being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted with evil, he's not enticed by evil. He does not want us to be enticed by evil. Therefore, he is not the one enticing us. Since God hates sin, he is not the one bringing it to our doorstep, saying, what are you going to do? It has not come from God. Temptations come at us in trials, but they are not from God. Like a financial trial. You will be tempted toward questioning God's providence. Does God really care about me? Is God really giving me what I need? A lost loved one will test your faith that God cares about you, that God actually knows what he's doing. Sickness and chronic pain will test your faith that God loves you, or that maybe even God has the ability to heal you. 
When you're being mistreated, you're being tempted to seek your own revenge because God's too slow and God's unfair. I mean, you see how when trials come, there are temptations on the backside of every trial that Satan wants to bring up. That's why verse 14, but each person, so how does this actually happen? Here's the blueprint of temptation. Each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. This language in verse 14, lured and enticed in Greek, it, this is the language of the world of Bass Pro Shop. This is all fishing terminology. Fishing and, and being lured and enticed. There is an overwhelming variety of lures, aisles after aisle of kind of fishing lures. Because certain fish are drawn to a certain wiggle and a certain shimmer and a certain sound and a certain drag and a certain speed and angle. And certain fish are drawn for certain things. This is why we should be very sympathetic towards every sinner on this planet. Just because someone doesn't sin the way you do, we each have our own lures and our own desires. We're lured and enticed by our own desires. We sin because it lies within us. It's something we want. Sin doesn't just, we don't just bumble into sin. It's something we wanted. When I was fishing in middle school, we were, we were done fishing on the dock. My cousin and I, we were walking back and he didn't bring in his line all the way. And he turned and walked away kind of quick. That thing, that triple hook, swing around and grab my eyelid. So I was not lured and enticed by my own desire. I was not hooked by my own doing. That was a complete, whoa, that happened to me. That's not the way sin happens. We see the wiggle. We see the shimmer. We see the bottle. We see that body. We see that thing in the store, and we're James gives us the blueprint for how sin occurs, our own desires. In verse 15, the desire, when it's conceived, now he switches metaphors, it gives birth. And when sin, when it's fully grown, brings forth death. If that sin's allowed to grow and it blows up, then it wreaks havoc in our lives. And there's no one to blame. Your boss isn't to blame. Your spouse isn't to blame. Your kids aren't to blame. God certainly isn't to blame. James puts the responsibility right on our shoulders and right on our hearts. You go all the way back to the black box of how sin entered the world in Genesis 3. Moses says that Eve took of the fruit in the garden because it was a delight to the eyes and it was desired, desired to make one wise. So she ate. The battle from Genesis 3 to Tomball, Texas is right in our desires, right in our delights. So what do we really want? What do you really want out of life? You want to honor Jesus and live for his glory? Or you want a few seconds of poisonous pleasure that warrant hell? Russell Moore, in his book, Tempted and Tried, asked one of the most piercing questions I've ever heard. He says, if, you, if there was a sin you could commit and you wouldn't get in trouble, there'd be no consequences, what would it be? Does anything come to mind? Whatever did come to mind, 
that is the most dangerous thing in your life. It's what wants to destroy you. It cannot rip you from Christ, but it wants to ruin your life and ruin everything around you, ruin everyone around you, ruin your reputation, ruin your life. That's why verse 16, he says, do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Do not be tricked into thinking, ah, sin's not a big deal. Do not be tricked into thinking about that Russell Moore question that I'll never do that. I I know that was a desire, but don't water that down. Whatever temptation came to the surface of that question, don't think I'd never do that. The point is that James is making is you already want to do it. All that's waiting is the opportunity. All that's waiting is the right lure. All that's waiting, waiting is the right wiggle. This is why, this is why we need Jesus. Because it is our own desires. It is our own temptations. This is why Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. I will take your sins And I will take your place. I will take your temptations. I will take those desires. I will take those evil thoughts. I will take those evil actions. And I will put them on myself. And I will die for them. And now you can look at your sins. Now I can look at every sinful desire that I still crops up in my heart. And every sin that I think about and I'm tempted with. And I can stare it in the face and go, that has been crucified with Christ. And no longer has dominion over me. For it is for freedom that Christ died to set me free. Therefore, I am no longer subjected to that yoke of slavery. Now I am free to follow Jesus. I do not have to listen to that desire. For my life is not my own, and I've been bought with a price. And now I can glorify God in my body. This is what the risen Christ brings us. And here he reminds us at the end, when the gifts of the risen Christ is to see that trials don't discredit God's goodness. And trials, we think they kind of eclipse, kind of this divine eclipse over God's goodness and grace, but they do not. And here in the midst of trials, here's what we should keep believing about God. Verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. Within there is no variation or shadow due to change. God doesn't change. He hasn't changed before the foundation of the world, and he hasn't changed today. He hasn't changed in his character for how he treats Moses and how he treats Paul and how he treats you and how he treats me. Every good gift comes down from above. James is turning us Godward again in the midst of our trials, in the the midst of our temptations. He says, look to God. He's not withholding you. He's not withholding. He's not holding out on you. This is what Satan tempts Eve with. Oh, Eve, you should totally eat it. God's holding out of you because he knows when you eat of it, you'll be like him. He's holding out a gift. He's not going to give it to you. He's stingy. She takes. Satan, when he's talking to Jesus during his temptations, he says, Jesus, if you bow down to me, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. I'll give you everything. Satan knows what Jesus came to do. He's going to reign over the earth. But he's telling Jesus, I'll give it to you now. You don't have to go through the trial of crucifixion. You don't have to go through the trials of this earth. Avoid it all. I'll give it to you now. Satan's tempting us with all the exact same things. Avoid the trials. I'll give you what you want. 
Satan wants us to think that every good and perfect gift comes from him, not the Father. Your life is from the Father. Your, your roof is from the Father. Your money, your friends, your, your church, your spouse, your children, anything and everything in your life that is a gift, that is a blessing, it is a traceable reality back to the Father. I love Psalm 16 too. I say to the Lord, we worship the Lord when we say, you are my Lord, I have no good apart from you. Everything in my life has come from you. Everything has come from his hand. And what is not to be overlooked, forgotten, minimized, or taken for granted, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. That we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Well, we're born again because of God. We're made new creations because of him. Because of the mighty grace of Christ, because of the mighty heart of God, he made us alive with him. What's God's desire? We've been talking a lot about our desires. Should count it all joy. Should ask for wisdom. Don't look to riches. Remain steadfast under trial. Desire the crown of life. We're tempted by our own desires. What's God's desire? What hatched from the heart of God? Verse 18. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. Your salvation came from the very fiber of God. Grace abounding to sinners. Have you been brought forth by the word of truth? This is what it means to be a Christian. That you were brought forth. You were born again by the word of truth, which is the gospel. Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Praying a prayer doesn't make you a Christian. Reading the Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Being brought forth, born again by the word of truth. This is what it means to become a Christian. So have you believed that Jesus died for your sins and rose again from the dead? That he paid the penalty that you deserved? That he offers you eternal life and forgiveness if you only believe in him? And you'll have everlasting life. He invites you today. And church, if you have been brought forth by the word of truth, Now we know God's wisdom is the best way. He brought me forth by the word of truth. He he began the good work in me and he will be faithful to complete it. I will receive the crown of life. I will remain steadfast under trial for he gives me all the wisdom I need. He gives me all the help I need. When trials strike, when suffering hits, we don't waver on God's goodness. Rather, we keep staring at God's goodness until we see it and believing that now we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. What shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trial, shall tribulation, shall peril, shall nakedness, shall sword, shall cancer? No. And all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Let James 1 be your field guide for trials. It's definitely better than 100 deadly skills. Let's pray together.